As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Before we hear from today's guests, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Today we are talking about another important topic, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this, so do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable. Today we're going to be talking about God, sexuality, and the church. Now I'm going to introduce our guests. We have David Bennett, who as a young man saw Christianity as an enemy of freedom, um, in particular for LGBTQI people, and his early experiences with homophobia and prejudice led him to become a gay activist. He's now a postdoctoral research fellow in Tudor in theology at the University of Oxford. We'll get into more on his story in just a moment. We're also joined by Taylor Telford, who is a lesbian theologian, a minister in the American Presbyterian Church. She holds a BA theology and a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. She also has a PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and currently teaches at Whitworth University in Washington State. How are you both doing today? Really great. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining me. We are going to first dive into your stories. And so, David, I want to start with you. I want to read here a little piece of an Instagram post that you had put up. You wrote, I was an atheist queer activist who vowed to destroy Christianity. Now I'm a theologian at Oxford devoted to following the lamb wherever he goes. There's a (laughs) lot there. And so let's let's start there. And I know this is a loaded question, but I, I want to throw it out to you to tell us a little bit about your story that you encapsulated there. Yes. Well, my story really starts, I think, being trapped in the problem we've all been trapped in, which is this kind of certitude of modernity where you take a very strong ideological stance and then you reject it and then you find truth somehow through the kind of wish wash change of those those two things and i think for me now you know in my journey when i look back especially as a young person who was you know raised in an agnostic atheist home but faith was introduced to that environment and i felt very rejected by this kind of piecemeal um, it wasn't really the gospel. It was a Christianese cultural message 
that you have to be perfect, you have to not be queer, you have to be heterosexual, to fit, to be right before God. And I couldn't really hear the gospel. I felt rejected. I think understandably so. But we know that the gospel is actually you are made righteous with God through faith. Um, but I couldn't see that because I was in the wrestle of the mystery of sexuality. And that is such deep mystery in it. It's like Werner Heisenberg. There's a paraphrase of what he said once, which is that, you know, when I take the first gulp of the glass of the natural sciences, it makes me an atheist. But when I drink all the way down, I find God waiting at the bottom, staring up at me. And in fact, it, for me, it wasn't just God or some scientific atheistic view because sexuality is so deep. It was Christ. It was the incarnate Christ who came into that mystery and met me in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney when that inner self-rejection had reached like a fever pitch. And I was like, I have to destroy Christianity to be free and couldn't see the real gospel. And then the love of God broke into my life and I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, and there was this prophecy that from my uncle who I had a debate with three months before that in 2008 Christmas. And in 2009 March, I was in a pub and this, uh, this young filmmaker prayed for me and I was, yeah, I encountered Jesus, the love of God, heard the voice of God and was never the same. And so my journey was like <laughs> a journey of how does my faith reconcile with my sexuality? And it was like having the brain of an atheist gay activist, but the heart of a spirit-filled born-again Christian. And then there were all the trappings of kind of idolatry of the U.S. and evangelicalism and the relationship between U.S. politics, polarization, queer identity, and being kind of caught up in all of that and trying to find what is the real gospel here and like what am I called to commit to and what am I actually called to throw off this is not okay and that's when I came to meet Taylor faithfully um one day in a master seminar at the, <laughs> the University of St Andrews and you know in me was again another reaction of self-rejection she's side a she has a different view to me I'm side B, I'm celibate, I've sorted through things, and this is clearly the way to go. And I think I was tempted to repeat. Can yeah. I, I want to pick up on that story in a moment, but but just in case people are just hearing side A, side B, if you wouldn't mind, just dig a little bit into into side B, start there, where, where you are. Yeah, so side B really emerges out of um, kind of the gay... It was the gay Christian network in the U.S. that met together and they realized we can't really reconcile these things. Like some people are going to be okay with gay marriage and see that as theologically permissible and others are not because this is so complex. So rather than hurting each other and starting a culture war, why don't we do what queer people have done best? Live in the unknown, live in the difficulty and love each other across that irreconcilable difference. And I think there's something incredibly Christian about that because in the first century you had the division between Jews and Christians and people reaching across differences of all kinds um, without selling it short, you know, and I think it's not an exact parallel, but there are deep Christian skills in this that I think are, are really important. So that's where so side B is kind of, 
I'm not going to enter into gay marriage, I would see that ultimately as against the created order or a sacramental will of God. But there is still good in gay relationships. Um, and I can have some solidarity, like quite a profound solidarity with people who disagree with me on this. But it's also a really important belief. And I can't just say it's easily reconcilable. And side A would be the mirror difference of that, but with with a belief that gay marriage is theologically permissible. Taylor, did you want to jump in with anything? Yeah, you want to add anything to that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So um, this language, side A, side B, was first coined by Justin Lee. Um, it you can you can read about it in his book. Um, it's called Unconditional in the UK and Torn in the US. Um, but side A basically meaning it's it's inside language. I think that's important to name that. It's intended to be used by queer Christians, not by straight Christians. Straight Christians will sometimes use it to identify, and we can talk about that. But um, it's intended to be used by LGBTQ uh, plus Christians. So side A being those who, based on the way they read the Bible, they have experienced the Holy Spirit and um, their own theological understanding, believe that God can and will bless um, same-sex, same-gender covenantal marriage relationships. Um, and as David said, side B is adhering to some language that can be used as like the traditional understanding of marriage. Um, uh, there's other language around that language is always changing. It's challenging in different ways, but, um, side B being, um, you know, uh, for David, I know he identifies as gay very openly, um, but believes that that means, um, God calls him to celibacy. Um, side B can also affirm mixed orientation marriages. I have another uh, good side B friend who is himself gay, but is married to a straight woman. So um, mixed orientation marriages, again, affirming that on the side B side, God intends uh, marriage to be between people of opposite sex. And so um, living into that either through celibacy or mixed orientation marriage. You know, I, I want to get we, we have more to unpack, uh, David, with your story. But Taylor, I want to ask you, you know, as you two met and encountered one another and started to talk. And I want to get your reaction on this in a moment, David. But Taylor, what what was that process like for you as you started to learn and understand that maybe there were some some big differences here uh, that you were going to have to navigate? Well, it's funny because. St. Andrews is a very small place. Um particularly in the divinity school and I was doing my PhD I'd already been there for I think a year or two and um all I knew was someone had told me that oh there's this other gay Christian and he's writing a book about being celibate and I'm like oh this again (laughs) um but then I was just like this is so dumb like we actually met I think several months later um and we were like why didn't we just hang out before this because we have so much more in common than not because particularly within the divinity school we were for sure the only um openly queer people in masters or phd programs so um yeah we ended up you know um getting together over coffee over waffles and it was just really lovely um i i can share more about my story but um i just have a deep um, gratitude and empathy for side B 
um, theology and for David's story. So um, it was just sort of funny because at first there was that sort of cultural pressure to be like, oh, whose side are you on? Which unhelpfully we are side B, I say side A, side B, right? But then mm. we were like, this is ridiculous. Um, let's be friends. So, and David, I want you to react to that too. And I want, you know, viewers and listeners to know that we are going to come back. We're going to get into all the differences. We're going to go you know, back and forth on that, unpack that more. And we're going to come back to that relational aspect towards the end of the show today, because it is important. But David, what was your reaction to sort of finding out about Taylor? And again, same thing, realizing there were going to be some intense you know, differences there. I think what's really important that uh, Taylor hasn't shared her story yet. So maybe I can start this, start us off, but Taylor, when I heard her story and I was able to actually empathize with where she was coming from, it really helped me understand her positionality. And, you know, she'd been raised in the American fundamentalist, I think Baptist, it could be wrong, Taylor. Uh, evangelical, but yeah. Evangelical, yeah. Um, in the U.S. with those kinds of very intense right-wing evangelical beliefs that really did depart from christian orthodoxy in many ways um i think and 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 just hearing how a side b position or more i don't even like the word orthodox but in some sense historically orthodox we could say position chimed too much with that kind of worldview in some ways and how that opened up this deep well of empathy in me like yeah if i was raised that way where would I end up? <laughs> because my experience was as this convert who didn't know the faith at all in a kind of direct sense and had this very superficial cultural understanding of what being Christian or believing the gospel looked like. And then experiencing an intense kind of love affair with Jesus <laughs> and then coming out with a kind of positive celibacy that wasn't repressive or like those things but i hadn't been in a context where those things had been twisted and i i that opened up my heart to taylor and was like wow you know i i you know i just honor that because i understand it it's like a mirror to me and there was something always in my body that responded and i think there's something about the body in this that's very deep and i don't even know how to articulate it it often brings me to tears but there was this sense of carrying one another or mutually identifying with each other across difference and having this solidarity across that difference that was really beautiful. And Taylor, I think you felt that for me quite deeply as well. And Taylor ended up editing my book, and that's why it's a good book, <laughs> um, <laughs> because you edited it. But anyway, Taylor, I'm going to stop. I want Maybe you could tell more of your story, um, Billy, and you could lead, lead us there. Maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, juxtaposing your experiences, you know, David, you growing up the way that you did in sort of that agnostic initially sort of environment, and then Taylor, you growing up in this faith environment that I would imagine you have landed quite differently in some ways from where you were uh, growing up. Tell, take us through that because it is it is fascinating. Yeah, um, that is one thing that is so lovely about David and my friendship and our stories is that <laughs> like our origins are so they're almost opposite. <laughs> um, and um, it allows for a lot of um, sort of intersection in our understanding. But for me, um, as David noted, yes, I um, grew up in a sort of um, generally conservative um, household that um, became kind of a Christian household. I started attending 
um, an evangelical church um, in middle school. And so that was deeply formational in my faith. And for those of you who don't know, in American evangelicalism, um, there's just a lot of sort of unhelpful um, entwining of sex and sexuality with sort of this purity culture and faith um, in conservative um, American Christianity um, that is, I think, pretty unhealthy. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up in a place um, that, though, was deeply committed to Christ, was committed to the Bible, um, and very thankful for the um, proficiency I have in uh, the Bible because of my evangelical upbringing. Um, but, you know, there was not a lot of space to think about um, sex and sexuality um, outside of heteronormativity, um, nor even within heteronormativity in a very healthy way. It was a lot of shame, a lot of um, hiding, a lot of, yeah, not not super great <laughs> stuff. Um, and as I, um, you know, continued to grow up um, in college, I started to sort of understand that I interacted in the world in a different way. I started to realize that I was attracted to women and that was deeply painful because the only theological narrative I've been given was that I was a deviant. I was an aberration. I was an abomination. And I just couldn't understand why God would do this. And I had no structure, no support to be able to untangle that in a healthy um, theologically robust way. And I will say I did have lovely um, friends and mentors um, whom I was able to speak with who were more conservative on this, um, who basically told me that this was my cross to bear. Um, and I came to the understanding that, well, based on how I read the Bible and how my, you know, theological mentors read the Bible, like I have to be single and celibate for the rest of my life. So I did um, come to a side B position and it took several years to sort of come to terms with that. But what changed for me was while I was doing my master's degree, I um, was in this uh, sort of spiritual space where I was, I could tell that the spirit was challenging me to be, to be open in some new way. And what was spoken to me was, you know, your adherence to celibacy, your um, decision to be single for the rest of your life is a lot more about control than it is about faith. Um, there's a sense in which you are guarding yourself from God um, by shutting yourself off from this question in this way. And so, honestly, the way that my journey from being side B to side A was mostly just in the prompting of the Holy Spirit saying like, you know, maybe just be open. Maybe just be curious. Maybe there is something else here. And at the time, I also had a number of friends and other mentors who were um, side A affirming either queer Christians or not queer Christians who were advocating for um, the affirmation of same-sex marriage. 
And so really it was sort of, of course, with wrestling and reading through the Bible and these sorts of things um, in community, but also just that prompting of the spirit. And I think there's resonance there between David and my story. And I think it's so important to keep in mind when you're thinking about why a queer person understands the way they are. Um, it's always so complex and so much of it also comes down not only to how do you read the Bible and why, but like how have you encountered God in your story and how has that also shaped those things as well. Um, so I'll stop there, but there's sort of like a, a window into that that particular transition in my own experience. Well, and that's and that's really sort of the the, the sticking point here. One of the issues, right? One of the differences um, is this idea of, of being celibate. And I have some questions about that for you, David. But is there anything there with what Taylor just said that that you want to react to or respond to? Yeah, well, a lot of my studies have brought me into the figure of Augustine, who is extremely important basically for every branch of Christianity and and faith because he's one of the geniuses of the church and of understanding the gospel. And he says, we're all pilgrims on our way. We're all facing the mystery of this existence together. And some of us have been oriented by the love of God. We have scripture to help us as an ultimate guide, ultimate authority in that. But then Thomas Cramner, who's one of the reformers in Oxford, he said, basically, this scholar of his thought, Ashley Null, summarizes his view of how we come to know something. And he says, what the heart desires, the will wants, and then the mind justifies. So much of what we believe is a journey of heart. And it's, 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 God is writing that journey, that story, that leading us on that pilgrimage. And our job in each other's lives is not to self-righteously jump into someone else's shoes and say, here's where you're wrong in every place. It's to be like this mutual witness in that process of pilgrimage, which comes from humility. And I think what I've loved about my friendship with Taylor and which marks it is this humility that we both derive from knowing Jesus Christ that is actually more fundamental than anything because it's it's the fruit of love. And that's another thing that Augustine says is if you don't have humility, you can't find the truth. You're always stuck in yourself. Your heart just desires this thing. And I think both Taylor and I are vulnerable enough with each other to say, I am on my journey. I'm on my pilgrimage. And this is where I land. And this is faithfulness to Jesus for me. And we don't agree. <laughs> and we, you know, we even face this weird thing where Taylor would be like, well, if I was in your church, you wouldn't want me to be a minister, but I am a minister over here. <laughs> I'm like, I, uh, <laughs> and it's really hard. And I'm like, but I wouldn't, but I would, but I, ah, uh, <laughs> like, you know, well, just you're like, dealing with very heavy, real differences, right? And, and a friendship. And yet these are differences. And we're going to come back to this later on. But that affect, as you just said, people serving and how you view them serving in the church. It affects even really what you think is morally or ethically right or wrong to a degree, right? I mean, these are big things for people. And yet the two of you are able to look through that. I think we are, but with trepidation. <laughs> I mean, we're also finite humans and I would just also say, you know, I obviously have a very deep conviction that marriage is between a man and a woman, that that has deep sacramental importance from scripture and in the way the gospel is understood. I don't think God created us male and female to oppress LGBTQI plus people because he was doing that to reflect a future reality where we'll all have access and actually do right now through faith, have access to 
ultimate love in the resurrection. That's really hard to explain to someone who doesn't believe. And I think that's part of the problem we also face is like, you actually have to have faith to understand why a Christian believes what they do. And our more secular culture favors a culture war mentality because it wants like a final answer. And that's very damaging to people like us because it doesn't work that way. And we want in our media just to have a quick soundbite answer. And I can give that soundbite answer. I've done it multiple times from about what I believe or what Taylor <laughs> believes. But like, so what? What then? Like, we actually have to love each other. We actually have to live. And there's two options. One is we enter into a culture war and destroy the church's life and all live with trauma and pain and difficulty or we learn to love each other. So actually, this is really serious and important stuff. And I don't want to live in that culture war anymore. I don't want to live with the cost that it puts in queer people's lives, side A or side B. I just want to point to Jesus, who was the one I fell in love with and who has just made my life such a place of joy. And to be able to say, you know what, Taylor's on her journey. And I pray Taylor might one day become side B, and I'm sure she prays for me to become side A. But like, that's not the center of our relationship. And we tease each other. And, you know, so I think that's my reaction. And there is a really hard side to it for both of us. For me, it's, well, I have this sacrifice I'm giving and like, this is really costly. But Taylor never trivializes that. She always is deeply honors that. Yeah. And then I, her journey to like open up to love in a bigger sense of that definition is not something that I look down on and say, well, how stupid is that? Just obey the ethic. I'm like, I would approach that differently with what I know. <laughs> and I, you know, and so I think that's where we end up. And there are times where both of us, like I'll say, oh, sometimes you make me want to be side A and she'll be like, you make me want to be side B. And I don't know, that's the best we can do. Like, and we continue with our convictions and we pray for each other that before Christ, there will be, I think he's going to say much more, what, not whether you're side A, side B, but did you actually love each other as I had loved you? And have you actually laid down your life for each other first? We have to take a quick break for a moment. We're going to be right back, but let us know if you're listening, watching. Uh, let us know what you think of what you're hearing. You can send us an email. We always love hearing from you. Our email address is unbelievable at premier.org.uk. We still have plenty to talk about. You're listening to Premier's Unbelievable with me, Billy Hollowell, and my guests are David Bennett and Tyler Telford. We'll be right back. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask and You Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash 
Unbelievable Show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this discussion on sexuality, the church, gay marriage, and Christianity. With me are David Bennett and Tyler Telford, both theologians, both gay, and both good friends. And of course, they differ on their interpretation of what the Bible says on sexuality, and we're going to get into that. Uh, I want to I wanna come back right now, just off the bat here in our second segment, and talk about this idea of, of, of holding back, of being celibate. And I want to get reactions from both of you. But, but David, for those who don't understand this, because there, there are going to be people, obviously, um, on side A or people even outside of this discussion who say, well, what does that mean? How do I comprehend or understand that? Can you, can you take us through why this is important to you? Well, I think what's really important is that, to me, God's message to queer or LGBTQI plus people is not be celibate. <laughs> God's message is come follow my son Jesus, pick up your cross and deny yourself, follow me, etc. You know, lose your life to gain it. And in that process, we go through various stages of how we understand things. It's like not, <laughs> you know, it's not this. I think I had lived out sometimes a negative paradigm of celibacy in my own journey as a side B Christian. And I needed God to come in and show me the path of healthy celibacy that wasn't repressive, but was about this fullness that I'd received. And, you know, you could say something like, I, I fast, so because I'm going to eventually feast, because I knew, like, this was a positively driven celibacy that wasn't repressing myself, and that when I saw an attractive person, I would say, thanks, God, for creating them. They're really attractive. <laughs> uh, I'm giving that up for you, because I know in the final time, I will have full access to an even greater intimacy than sex. So for me, it's much of a muchness if I'm married or not, you know, in the way I want to be. And maybe God will give me also this other option of a mixed orientation marriage. So that's my view as a side B Christian is to come against both bad marriage and bad celibacy, that the problem is a bad aestheticism. Um, and then even, I think, for Taylor said to me, well, being around you has helped me realize I'm complete within myself. I don't need a relationship. I could have one, which is your in the way that I desire as a queer person. But, you know, knowing you as a side Christian has helped me in that particular area. Talking to Taylor for me has been really advantageous of what does queer identity mean? What does our gay identity mean in a gospel sense? So there's things we've learned from each other. But about the celibacy thing, I think we really mishear the gospel message it is not you must be celibate it's all christians must learn to be whole within themselves before they get married when paul gives the concession in 1 corinthians 7 it's because the church is really immoral and really kind of suck <laughs> and so he's like i give this concession not from the lord but from me because you guys need it it's like a grace but it's not the ethic of the gospel the ethic of the gospel is so much more beautiful so much more deep, you know, profound about loving God, loving each other with this love that goes beyond sex and marriage, but could involve it. In, in, in. And for me, that has to be according to the, what I understand as the created or moral order. Um, and for a tailor, that's, that's a bit different. So that's where the, the fault lines of difference lie. But there's a lot that we can learn from each other in that process. That makes sense. 
And we have to avoid bad celibacy and bad marriage and that purity culture that can be so negative and the liberal culture that is abusing sexuality as well. It's not just one or the other. So Taylor, as you're hearing all of that, you know, there's a, there's a lot there, right? There's a lot of areas of agreement, but also a lot of disagreement on this. You were on a journey at one point where you said you landed on a side B personally and then moved away from that. Take us through that a little bit more and, and feel free to respond to some of what David said there. I know there's a, there's a lot to unpack. Sure. I want to say up front that um, uh, David and I are in total agreement on we need to get get clear on what we mean by celibacy and marriage. Um, and I will often say that as even as a side A um, queer Christian, that um, the progressive or liberal church's response to LGBTQ inclusion in the church is like, well, now you can just get married. That's sort of the last word. And my response to that is usually, well, thanks, but I don't really want to just participate in your idolatry. Um, and I think that one thing David and Side B uh, gay Christians really help us with is to see the uh, real cost and gift of what it means to give ourselves to God completely. And that um, celibacy is actually something, and singleness is something I think that people of all orientations um, can be called to. And um, I think that uh, the side B witness to the side A church is really important in that way of saying, hey, yeah, marriage and partnership is good and deeply meaningful and blessed by God, but it is not necessary for completion as it is often um, communicated um, within all spaces, not just conservative or liberal, like marriages, particularly in the American church is seen as like, well, this is just what you do. So I'll start by saying that and reiterating that um, the New Testament elevates celibacy and singleness over marriage, and that is not reflected in most uh, Christian spaces. Um, I'm not necessarily condoning that specifically, but just pointing it out. <laughs> um, so I will say this is actually, again, where um, I recognize that I'm a bit, a bit of an anomaly in the side A community because David and I actually agree a lot on a lot of things, um, a lot of these things, and can see the value in our own sort of uh, perspectives on this. And I'll say the thing that um, how I understand um, uh, these issues uh, Christianly is where is God leading a person to liberation? I think that is what is the deepest um, piece of this. Uh, and this is why, David, I hope you know that I actually don't pray that you become side A because I just like, I pray that you're you. I pray that you're yeah. you, the person that God has made you to be. And I pray that um, you continue to experience the gift of God's liberating love in the way that you are so faithfully um, living out your calling. Um, and I think yeah. that is and, what... And to clarify... Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, clarify, you're good. <laughs> I more kind of mean it in a a kind of joke joking sense that yeah, there is no absolutely this little bit of either of us that still has this conviction sure. and wants that to be shared yeah but totally Taylor thank you I really appreciate yeah it. <laughs> yeah so so for me like and I also recognize as side A like 
my in some ways my like quote my like umbrella in a sense can be a bit broader like i have a privilege as a side a um queer christian to be able to say like yeah david like live live how you want to live um that like is not quite <laughs> it doesn't work um as as seamlessly on like a side b position because the sexual ethics are are different um so i recognize my privilege in that in some ways that i can say you know great <laughs> and David can say great to me, but maybe with like a lowercase g. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah so I think act. I'll stop it's, there. Yeah, it's the Acts fifteen early church ruling that gets me of like no Jewish pornea. Like what that all means for the Jews is like nothing outside covenantal marriage between a man and a woman is okay, and that is a more intense ethic. Whereas maybe for Taylor, she would interpret pornea as like a general unfaithfulness yeah. that misuses sex, sex. Whereas I would say, again, it has this hearkening back to Genesis. But can we go to the biblical texts? Would that be okay, Billy? We could. I was going to save it for a little bit later into sure. this segment, but we can dive there. I, I'm. We can go there now. Feel free. Let's. I mean, let's let's do that because that's obviously. The, the core of this, right, when we look at scripture, and before we even get into the text, let's actually start with this with this question. And David, I'll I'll start with you on this, and then we'll we'll go to Taylor. But how do you view the Bible? Let's just pull back a little bit a little bit on this. How are we supposed to read the Bible and view the Bible in your view? I'll start with the Bible is the sacramental textual flesh that Jesus has taken on. It is his autobiography of sorts <laughs> the only way the bible is fully itself is if it's read through jesus christ and that he is the hermeneutical key to the bible being the word of god so where christ is not the key i would be worried about reading the scriptures as the ultimate authority but where jesus is i would grant the full it is the Bible is the word of God. So I do believe the Bible is the ultimate authority. I do believe in the Reformation view that scripture, sola scriptura, that doesn't mean there aren't any other things involved in how we form life, practice, doctrine, but that it is the place we go as the ultimate authority. Um, there's a lot more to say, but I'll leave it there so that Taylor, <laughs> uh, uh, to open up for Taylor to to give her two cents worth as a theologian. <laughs> sure, yeah, tell, tell let's hear your, I'd love to hear your your perspective on that. Absolutely, I mean, again, a lot of resonance. Um, I believe the Bible, so like I said, I'm very thankful for the biblical literacy I was given um, in the tradition in which I grew up, um, but I've come to understand the Bible very differently since then. Um, first, I'll say I think it's deeply important to recognize that our interpretation of the Bible is not the Bible itself. Our interpretation of the Bible is not the Bible itself. And all too often, um, those are conflated and then used as weapons against those with whom we disagree. And then I will also say, in resonance with David said, that the Bible is primarily an authoritative story. We worship a God as Christians who has a storied identity. God has chosen to reveal God's self through time and history in this particular way through these particular people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. And yes, the Bible is the word of God, but Jesus Christ is the living word. And 
um, because we worship a triune God, this changes the way we read the Bible as well. One, it means that the Bible um, is this vehicle through which the Holy Spirit directs us to Christ in obedience to the Father. So this, the Bible, as David said, is authoritative insofar as the Holy Spirit uses it to conform us to Christ, to point us to Christ in a life that is um, responding to the Father's love for us. And I will also say that uh, because we worship a triune God and because the Bible itself is intentionally uh, diverse in its voices, in its times and places, um, we read the Bible best when we read it with others, particularly with those who have experienced life on the margins. The Bible is not a Bible written, it's not a text that's written by people who are at the center of cultural life, um, broadly speaking, and in the sort of worldly timeline. Um, yes, it was written by people of privilege within that small community, for the most part, but um, it is a text that is read best with others in community, particularly those um, who are different from us. We worship a God who is diversity and unity, and I think that that should be reflected in the way we read this authoritative story and submit our lives to Christ in the Holy Spirit. So, so both of you gave that that lens, and and those were both really robust explanations there. And obviously, David, you wanted to go, you wanted to go right into the scriptures. So I know <laughs> that there are obviously a number of scriptures here that are that are the most common scriptures that are raised in chapters that are raised in the Bible on these issues. Why don't we start where you were thinking when you asked that question of, hey, can we go right into it? Let's just dig into uh, the scriptures that are most important to you on this issue. So I'm going to start back with St. Andrews. We had two professors in our, in our divinity school, one called Douglas Campbell, the other N.T. Wright, both of whom are my personal friends, both of whom completely disagree on how Paul should be read. But I would say they both helped me come to a very good side B ethic. What I mean by that is that N.T. Wright has affirmed the continuity between the Old and New Testament, that there is a robust Jewishness to the New Testament that must be guarded and cannot be taken away. Otherwise, we end up in heretical land. That's not okay. <laughs> and then there's Douglas Campbell who says, the gospel is about this apocalyptic love that has broken into the Jewish story and delivered people out of darkness. And Paul carried that. Jesus obviously is the height and fullness of that. But we have to be that apocalyptic love that breaks in, and we have to include. And when I read Romans 1, when I came to the text with both N.T. Wright and Douglas Campbell, I saw something really incredible, that the truth of the law has been used to condemn LGBTQI plus people, and that has been a complete twisting of the gospel. Paul doesn't undermine the law in Romans 1 to 3. He agrees with it, but he disagrees with how it's being used by a particular group that are coming against his argument that the Gentiles are now included through faith. So what Paul gives us in Romans 1 to 3 is this incredible Christian ethic of radical inclusion of all people through faith, LGBTQI+, whatever it looks like. And yet this call to a holiness that doesn't throw off the law, but actually affirms it's truth that there is a male and female element to marriage and that that continues in the New Testament deposit. So that's where I end up side B, but I get there through the gospel message of you are 
me right with Christ, not because you could ever live up to the law, but precisely because you never could. And Christ is the greater righteousness that we all need, gay or straight, all humanity. And therefore, that gives us the love that makes our desire to live morally, according to Jewish kind of ethic of sexuality, not make that a law again in the sense Paul talks about, but into a new law that spirit breathed and written on our hearts to be celibate springs there from me. And then I don't read from the Old Testament through to and try to put that on the New Testament. I read from the resurrection to the garden. And I I go from the resurrected Christ as the ultimate humanity and explain the Genesis account from that basis. So I'm not trying to fit this heteronormativity that I've read in a fallen way from Genesis, from uh, like my own lens. But how does Jesus come and re-enchant that Genesis created order reality in the sacrament of marriage, but also in celibacy? So that's that's how I come at the text. And of course, there's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which uses this term, our coitus, which has been argued about a lot. But I think the best way to read it, and Taylor might disagree with me on this, but I think the best way to read it is that Paul is a Jew writing to non-Jews. And he's writing in Greek, but he's thinking in a Jewish way. That's really hard to get your head around. That's <laughs> 21st century Westerner, but he is trying to translate the Jewish ethic to the Gentiles where the law is clear that like there's no same-sex activity allowed and that that same-sex activity goes against the created order and he's trying to translate that as our senequitas. I think that's pretty clear and then we see that backed up by Acts 15 where they say no pornea and to a Jewish mind it would have been pretty clear you know that involves same-sex activity because that was the argument the legalists, Jewish legalists, were using against Paul to try and say his argument that the Gentiles are now included cannot be correct, that the Gentiles have to live according to the law. So that, that, that's kind of my very quick summary of how I end up affirming, you know, that marriage is between a man and a woman and not taking aside a position. However, the weakness in my argument, <laughs> the thing I wrestle with, is the lives of LGBTQI plus QIA plus people. And that that's a really hard thing for us. So you're saying to me, David, my desire goes against the created order in a way that straight people's desire does not. Where does that put me? And that is a hard question to answer from the more side B or traditional historical ethic. My answer to that is a passage in Isaiah 56 where Jesus calls himself kind of like a king a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom there's like this echo between that text in the Old Testament where God says to the eunuchs the people who can't have sex and marriage easily <laughs> you know who are single or celibate if you obey my commands and live according to my Sabbaths I will give a name and a memorial in my house that is better than sons and daughters that means being even better than being heterosexual, the thing you could do when you're heterosexual, or, you know, I'll give you a better name than that. I will give you an eternal name that shall not be cut off. And at that point, I start to see God's response to that problem for me. It doesn't solve it. It doesn't easy. But I see that God promises this hope for people like me who do grant, yes, 
my desire is somehow specially misaligned with the created order that puts me in a very hard position it doesn't mean i can't meet an opposite sex partner one day there's a second part that's difficult with my view which is transgender questions but i think i'm going to leave that for later that's another that's another episode but i wanted to bring that all in there so taylor you can then jump into your yeah tell I'd, I'd love to hear yeah your, your reaction now because obviously again there's a lot there um, but we would love to hear your response to that yeah thanks Billy I I deeply appreciate that David reads backwards in a sense because most quote-unquote traditional readings read forwards and I I think we as Christians we we need to do it we need to do it differently and so um, I also read backwards in a sense and I think David and I would agree on some points where we know the Bible actually isn't talking about homosexuality in the sense of like committed, caring partners like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not a story about that, <laughs> just to be clear. I will say, so for me, I said this before, but I do not think the Bible explicitly condones same sex or same gender relationships anywhere. So I just want to be clear about that. And I think that whenever we're interpreting the Bible, we're always doing just that. We're interpreting. And theology is involved in all sorts of things. One thing that I didn't mention when I was describing my understanding of the Bible is how I understand the importance of context. And I know that sometimes this can be frustrating for David because it becomes a question of what do we understand as contextually bound in scripture and what do we understand as sort of eternally true? (laughs) And there's always a tension there. So... For me, just riffing on um, what the text that David has mentioned, when I read backwards, I would probably I would lean more into um, the promise of the eunuchs, the people who are outside the sex and gender binary. Which, by the way, people in the ancient world and in the time of Christ would have been much more familiar and comfortable talking about knowing, interacting with people outside the sex and gender binary than we are today. There's something. There's a lot there. I'll just put a pin in that. But I would say, I would lean more towards how Paul talks about there's neither male nor female, slave nor free. And for me, that Christ was celibate, expresses the telos of procreative relationships that begin after the fall in Genesis 3. That Jesus is the fulfillment of this story. And the reason Jesus isn't married is because, one, marriage isn't essential to being human. And two, because it's an expression that this particular aspect of post-fall human life has been fulfilled. It's come to an end. And so where David, I think, would say, like, yeah, so now we're all leaning towards what does this resurrection look like? life look like? Well, we know that they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, as Jesus says. So we should look towards that as sort of our orienting reality. For me, I think it also relativizes marriage in the current um, era, in the sense that marriage is still deeply meaningful, it is deeply important, but as it has always been, It is meant to be the kind of relationship that reflects Christ's and God's faithfulness to humanity. And so it's more about what kind of relationship is being expressed there than who is involved in it. So in my tradition, um, I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA. The language that is used in our sort of documents is marriage is a um, covenant partnership between two people, comma, traditionally a man and a woman. And so for me, it's more of a question of, well, what kind of relationship is marriage? And we see there are lots of different kinds of marriages throughout the Bible. 
some that we would definitely not like, um, like David and the harem. I mean, not you, David, you know, King David. <laughs> um, the other David. Yeah, We're but not, just... not that David in my life. <laughs> yeah, right. Just to be clear. Um, and that's, that's not to say like, well, we should just relativize everything, but just to say like, okay, what, what is a way that this kind of relationship can be reflected in the context in which the spirit is showing up where we are now? And for me, that the eunuchs are included, that um, sort of the procreative aspect of marriage has been fulfilled in Christ, that we live um, in an era where same-sex, same-gender relationships very much reflect this kind of covenant faithfulness and can reflect that and participate in it, and is also like temporal. Um, we are all not going to be married in the time to come. For me, that relativizes sort of that aspect of, of marriage in the current era. So that's like, I think I'll stop there. But just again, to summarize, like, again, the way David and I read scripture is actually, mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap. <laughs> there are these very key differences. But again, it's, it's this question of, for me, of looking at the scriptures in context, looking at um, what, what, christ means as we look at that then and now yeah and i think i think what's what's fascinating just quickly for me is i also affirm the relativization of procreation and marriage i think but i believe that it the created order and the sexual difference has been vindicated and affirmed by the resurrection at the same time so there's this kind of double double movement in my ethics so that's just a quick that really yeah. does is probably one of the big differences, which is very subtle. It might seem very subtle to some people, very nuanced, but yeah, that that's where we draw the line. But yet we get almost to the same place and yet come to quite yeah. different conclusions. Well, we are going to pick it back up in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. If you want more from Unbelievable, you can sign up for our newsletter. And if you sign up, you'll be entered for a chance to win this month's book prize. You can let us know who has convinced you in this debate so far by emailing us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. And we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. Welcome back to the final part of our discussion and debate today. My guests are Taylor Telford and David Bennett. We just unpacked quite a bit in that last in that last segment, and there's so many places we can go. But I want to actually, and then and then you'll have a chance for final thoughts. I want to talk about the fact that the two of you are here. You've done this before. You have a friendship outside of this. And you're talking, as we were saying earlier, about things that are very difficult. They get to the heart of who a person is, what a person believes. What is it like, and I'll start with you, David, to have these arguments and debates with somebody you admire and deeply respect while at the same time, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, believing that on the, the ethics and the morals and the values that she's wrong on some of this. What is it like for you to navigate that? It's really hard. Being gay is really hard, but it's also a real gift. I think that's how I describe it. It's really hard, but it's such a gift. You know, when God became human, he experienced what it was like for us. And I just come back to that. There's something so deep there of who God is, that he reaches into another person's experience that he doesn't agree with all the time. And who might even be classified as his enemy. And identifies with them. There is nothing better than that. 
philosophically, theologically, ethically. It is the height of what we can know as human beings. And what I try to do with Taylor in the difficulty of that is imitate my God, who I have given everything for. I want to give everything for. Sometimes, you know, we have our days, don't we? But I yeah. desire to love Taylor in the way that God has loved Taylor through Jesus. And that's what I come back to. And it's not easy and it's hard. And there are times where I'm like, am I compromising my holiness? Ah, Or at times where I'm like, am I compromising my inclusion? And I come back to actually the end point for us in our current reality is a positionality of saying, I am not going to compromise holiness, but I am not going to compromise inclusion. And I think that's the best I really can do with everything I've looked into is to live that out in relationship with people I disagree with, but that I deeply love. And that's what God continues to do, chasing after those he disagrees with that are his enemies in Jesus Christ, lays down his life on the cross, rises again to give them a whole new life and offers that. And how can I do that to someone I disagree with? Now, when it comes to the church, Taylor's right. I cannot let Taylor be ordained and lead and be an elder. But Taylor's already jumped there, even though I believe in the spirit, in every other way of adoption, Taylor is an elder and is anointed of God. And I see that and I, I still affirm that in some sense, but I couldn't because I hold to what I believe is very clearly there in some sense, also not very clearly in others. And I often wrestle with God and I say, God, why have you not said more? Why is this all you give in scripture? Like, don't do this action. Is that it? Like, yes, you give the eunuch verse. And yes, there's this constructive theology that Taylor and I have both beautifully been trying to hold out to people so they could leave behind other things that are really damaging. But that took us a long time, both of us. Imagine being a 14-year-old who is gay and Christian trying to work this out. Like, it's so hard. So I think that's where it comes from. If I just have no choice but to show solidarity and to distinguish on some fellowship points. And maybe at times also for Taylor, there's a moment where she's like, well, David, I disagree with you here, and that's not okay too, but loves me back. And that's the best we can do until Jesus Christ returns and actually our salvation is not through our works through the ethics that we've <laughs> constructed our salvation is through faith in jesus christ that's a mystery itself that i'm still processing anyone but <laughs> i just come back <laughs> to who god is like who is he and how can i imitate him and how can i be like my lord on the deepest level possible um without compromising my holiness which and my holiness is to say to say to taylor I'm celibate, I disagree, I'm going in a different direction, but not using that as a weapon against Taylor, but as just I'm alongside Taylor in that pilgrimage witness and then being friends. That's and so I think being, there's a difference. Being able between, to say no. you're wrong but I love you. I was just saying being able to say you're wrong but I love you. And I'm not trying to oversimplify it here, you know, or, or I think you're wrong on yeah. this, but I love you. And you know, Taylor for you. And this is interesting because, you know, this conversation is happening at a time where 
culture is moving to a place that is much more familiar to your position now, Teller, than it is maybe to David's, right? And so you you sort of have these moves happening in the secular culture, you know, obviously outside of the church, and some things are happening in different facets of the church right now. Um, so for you, though, Teller, what is, what is that like? Same thing, to, to look across that aisle and say, you know, I think what you believe might be wrong, even morally or ethically, but I love you as a person. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out because, um, you know, as I've already mentioned, as a side A queer Christian, I very much am aware of the ways that I make more sense to the culture at large. And there's privilege in that, which is, you know, weird to say <laughs> as a queer female Christian, but there really is, genuinely. And I want to acknowledge that. I also want to say that because of that, I hope you know, David, um, that I often feel like I am in in some way an apologist for your position, truly. Like, I think it's very, I find it very important to try and describe and make sense for those um, that don't understand why someone would choose to live the way you live. And I do that because I know that you, David, um, you carry a heavy burden in the sense that people on the progressive side will reject you because they don't understand you, and people on the conservative side will as well because they don't understand why you'd identify as gay. So I want to first acknowledge that and say that, again, I find side B theology, David's story in particular, to be deeply meaningful and needed because of the ways that it challenges cultural assumptions about how we are called to live in our bodies in faithfulness to Christ. I also will say that for me, um, a text that's been so helpful just in orienting my own experience and conversations around this is Romans 14 and 15. For those who are unfamiliar, Romans is, of course, this beautiful theological treatise. In a lot of ways, it's actually leading up to this practical question that Paul is addressing in Romans 14 and 15 of what do we do with these believers in Rome those who presumably are Jewish believers who think they can only worship on particular days, eat particular food, and the Gentile believers who, because of the freedom they experience in Christ, believe they can eat anything and worship on any day. So again, two very different embodied ways of living faithfully as uh, followers of Christ. And instead of Paul coming in and saying, like, you're right and you're wrong, get over it, he says... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do not come together to quarrel and be in conflict over your opinions, but instead <laughs> look and see how are your siblings in Christ doing these things? Are they doing them in gratitude to God um, and in gratitude to one another for one another? Well, then they're being faithful. And so there's this way in which, you know, these these believers in Rome are saying, which way is the right way? Which way is the faithful way? And Paul says, it's the way that you're faithful that matters. Um, you're both living faithfully. Um, what's important is that you recognize you belong to Jesus. Um, and that has to be the anchor point. And so for me, you know, I, I again, I recognize that there is more space in my theology and ethics for side A, side B positions. Um, and so for me, a lot of the grief is not for David, but with David. Again, it's that solidarity of, I, I recognize that the ways that David moves in the world can be painful for, in the ways that he's received in a way that obviously I also, I experience 
you know, people ignoring, like not believing me, these sorts of things. Like I'm not down downplaying that. But I just on the topic of solidarity, like I think that as Paul calls believers in Rome to do in Romans fourteen and fifteen, that is what I want to do. That's who I want to be. I want to be someone who moves towards those with whom I disagree and um, connects in that mutual love of Jesus. And let's that be our witness to the radical love of God in a world that thrives on division and conflict. Well, I mean, that is, yeah. And, and that portion there beautifully said, you know, we are living in a world that, that really does thrive on division and conflict. The fact that we're even able to have this conversation right now, it's such a rarity. Unfortunately, it doesn't often happen. And so you guys have done such a great job of being able to do this repeatedly. Now we appreciate it. You know, we're inching toward the final section of the show here and towards the end you're both going to have a chance for final thoughts i'm going to shift gears just a little bit here um, because david you know there's a lot happening right now um, all over the world on this issue within the church the church of england you have bishops who want to allow um, clergy to preside over same-sex civil marriages you have a lot of debate going on there and so i know it's a loaded question but i would love to dig in from your perspective, if you could kind of take us through where things currently stand and, and how we got here, particularly when it comes to the Church of England. So there's been a long listening process called Living in Love and Faith, which produced some booklets and video resources that I recommend people do check out. One of the things I found incredibly disappointing with that material is the how little there was on a theology of love and eros and celibacy and good celibacy versus bad celibacy and side B Christian, side A Christians, and like actually the whole American conversation, which I think is really way better in some ways among at least gay Christians <laughs> um, than in the UK, actually, fascinatingly. But that wasn't in there. There was just a lot of kind of British people talking about it, and that's great too. But I think. Then we ended up with what's called prayers and love and faith after that listening process, which is when the House of Bishops got together to commission prayers, which would allow a kind of blessing of the same-sex union. Now, there's been a lot of debate. The more historically orthodox bishops have said, no, this can only be the blessing of the relationship in the good parts, but we disagree with it ultimately. We can't say this is equivalent to a gay marriage, but we want to bless queer people in their journey through that. And of course, the destiny we would hope for them in Christ would be a more sightly position, you know. And then there were bishops who wanted to kind of sometimes take the virtue signaling straight line of like, we're pro-gay marriage and get all the cultural reward for that. But also who genuinely love gay people, I think, as well. It wasn't just that motivation. And there's also the motivation on the other side of getting points for being orthodox, which we have to be careful with that language. But, you know, th there's point scoring on both sides, but th there was that like more liberal side of bishops. And then now there's a debate on how those prayers should be allowed to be used in the church. Now, the church seems to be slightly leaning at the moment towards saying, no, it needs to be really clear that this is not a marriage in any sense, but it is a blessing of these people as they walk through the mystery of this relationship. Um, and that is kind of now what might be on the table. But just as <laughs> recently as last 
this week, I think it was, uh, some more more progressive leaning bishops have now written there a statement of saying we're not happy with that and trying to push it the other way to say, well, this is some kind of half way of blessing gay marriages. So it's a it's a typical via media approach, um, finding the via media that Anglicanism has tried to find between all sorts of religion and cultural warring. And in one sense, I want to be in a church with people. I disagree with these on these questions, but I, at the same time, can't agree with a doctrinal change or an ethical practice that would contradict the doctrine of the church. So that's really hard, but I believe in very generous pastoral accommodation to people who disagree, and I don't want them to necessarily have to leave the church because that is the nature of the Church of England. It has always tried to do this. Uh, and there's problems with that and limitations with that, but there's also a beauty to it. I also connected to Pentecostal communities that have a very different <laughs> approach and would be much more, you know, cut cut that off and go go this way. And that's because they have a different way of understanding the church. So that's all to say we are on the precipice of kind of a direction and we're waiting for that to happen at the moment yeah now now tell we're going to move into final thoughts in, in a moment here and closing remarks is there anything you want to add to that because i know these are obviously again issues you are you're both going to have very different views on how this should go and what's currently going on but i wanted to throw it to you on that yeah i think for me so you know i'm in a very different context but um my particular tradition the pcusa uh, while as a body has made the space to affirm um, gay marriages, the ordination of LGBTQ people, um, it still has this aspect in its constitution called the uh, freedom of conscience clause, which I really appreciate because what it does is it basically allows us to recognize that there are things that are central and essential, but there are also secondary things that while important, we can disagree on and still remain in full communion. And I think that to me is so key. The hardest part about this, I've talked about this with David, I've talked about it with my other side B friends, um, particularly one who's also a pastor, is what, what do we do with policy? How do we create communities that make space? Can we make communities that create space for both side A and side B in a meaningful way? And I think at the moment, still trying to answer that question, but I know for me, one thing that I think would have been so helpful for me as a young queer Christian just in so much pain is having Christians acknowledge that, hey, here's where we stand on this. We recognize the humanity of LGBTQ people, that they are as beloved as any of us by God. This is what we believe about sexual ethics as we read the Bible. But you know what? We're in full communion. We have siblings in Christ uh, who disagree with us on the sexual ethics, but we are still united in our common faith in Christ and the central tenets of what it means to be Christian. And so I think for me, obviously in a different context, reflecting back on my own story, for queer Christians, I think it's so important to give them the awareness that there are various ways of being faithful in our embodiments in this way and providing the space for folks to enter into that 
questioning that journey, that pilgrimage with curiosity and openness and attentiveness and in community and saying, hey, how did you come to understand where you're at? How are you reading this? Okay, that resonates with me. Why? You know, rather than just saying it has to be this way. And if not, then like you're an abomination. Um, it feels pretty low bar, but I think that's what I'd like to add. So, you know, Taylor, while you're while you're speaking now, you know, we've come to the end of this conversation, um, essentially, and, and both of you really, again, giving your perspective in a way that I think people don't often get to hear it and respecting one another as friends and being able to do this. It, it's a model for how these conversations should go. Uh, and I just want to start with you, Taylor. Any closing thoughts, final thoughts? We, we hit on a lot of topics today. So just where your heart is and where you want to leave people today. Yeah, thank you. I think first to reiterate that I believe that this is not an essential issue. It's a secondary issue. None of the creeds talk about um, the Apostles nor the Nicene Creed talk about, you know, human sexuality or marriage. And that's not to say it's not deeply important. But where can we align on what is central in our love and trust of Jesus? Um, and how can that be the place where we start these conversations, where we have these conversations in welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us, you know, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies. This is how God loves, as David so um, love, uh, put in such a lovely way. So I'd say that. And I think secondly, um, I would just want to say that so much of the New Testament is concerns with the question of witness. Um, you know, Paul talks about um, you are the living letters. Um, you are the ones who are showing the good news of Christ to a world who deeply needs the healing and wholeness that God alone can bring. And so how can our actions reflect that? Um, yes, what we believe and what we believe about sexual ethics is going to be intimately tied into that. But how can our actions as Christians, through our welcome, through our dialogue, through our debate, how can it show a new way that reflects, that participates in, that brings about, that witnesses to God's reconciliation of the world in Christ? Um, so I think that's, that's where I'd like to end is both on the where, where is this situated in our conversations? Um, where can we recognize um, our unity and our uh, the tie that binds us, the Holy Spirit? And how can we do these things? How can we have these relationships in a way that shows the world um, what God desires, and that is wholeness and healing and love? And David, you get the final word today on your closing thoughts here before we close out. I just wanted to start by saying that I want to speak to every LGBTQI plus person, or they might not even identify that way, but have some of those elements in their human life and wrestle. I want to say to you, you are loved by God. Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again for you. And that where the church has told you that is not the case, I am here to say it is the case. And that he longs, God longs to know you. And God has a way, and it's not going to look like the way you think, for all of us, even if we're not LGBTQI+, to work out what does it look like to really love, to really know what love truly is in the holiest sense of that word, the truest sense of that word through Jesus Christ. And then I would like to say, 
that the New Testament has a tension within it that's extremely difficult. And I've spoken to the top scholars in the world who spend their life reading the Bible. So you might want to take their word for it, including N.T. Wright, who lives here in Oxford. He says it's easy to have unity when you have no holiness. And it's easy to have holiness when you have no unity. That there is this sense in the New Testament of complete radical solidarity with people that are enemies. And I wouldn't even say Taylor is my enemy. <laughs> you know, she's my friend. But there is a way in which we are in antithetical relationship to each other. And so there is this radical solidarity of God coming and showing in Jesus, which I've talked about previously. But then there's this other et ethic of don't even touch the clothes of these sexually immoral. It's a really hard thing to read and like radical holiness. But I just think if we lose one or the other, we lose both. So my invitation at the end of this is come and wrestle in that tension, please. If you're more conservative, just don't shut down. Actually open yourself to how would I love someone who disagrees with me? How would I show that solidarity without losing the holiness? So I think it's wrestling in the fray of solidarity with all people through friendship that Jesus showed so often. It was like so core to who he was. And yet radical holiness of fellowship that says actually this is what holiness looks like and I'm not compromising that and come and learn to do that with the power presence and truth of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and hopefully through this we can get to a better place where we stop harming each other we stop causing so much pain so that is what I'm going to continue to do without compromising my convictions and I hope this will be an invitation that will bless not just Christian people, but even people, all different religions in different places, that they might hear the first sounds of the melody of God's heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Taylor and I came on here, ultimately. And so thank you for having us, Billy. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you both. You know, we have to leave it there right now, but David and Taylor really appreciate you taking the time. And we hope that all of the listeners and viewers enjoyed this discussion as always. Let us know what you think, but for now, until next time, we'll see you later. Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you will automatically be entered into our competition to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to Unbelievable, please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening and see you next week.